1: the Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports gymnast Mike Finch.
0: Right, the Rugby World Cup is done for 2023 and uh, for us here in South Africa we have lost to celebrate as the Springboks edged out New Zealand by one point in the final. That was the third match in a row that the Springboks won by one point and I can tell you that the collective nation of South Africa is probably a couple of years older than they would have been at the beginning of this uh, last three weeks, purely because of the stress of the uh, of the of those uh, last few games. And uh, for those of us in South Africa, and for those of you listening overseas, I can tell you that the significance of that win was uh, probably more than what you saw just on the sporting front. Um, it really does have the ability to unite a nation, and uh, in South Africa, um, it really was uniting force. Um, every Part of South Africa celebrated the win of the Springboks. There were scenes all over the country of people dancing in the streets and that sort of thing. So, you know, the the power of the of a game as a simple sport like rugby that can change the way the nation feels about itself, um, I think, is significant. And uh, and I think that we can't underestimate the power of sports. And sometimes we underestimate that to some extent. I know I do. I think, well, it's just sport. It Does not really matter to my life whether or not the Springboks win the World Cup or not? But when you go into the streets and you see people wearing springbok jerseys and wearing their caps and flying their flags and that sort of thing, I think it really does have a uniting benefit for the entire nation. And not surprisingly, um, the president of South Africa, Sir Ramaphosa, was there at the final, raising the cup at one point, um, taking advantage of the situation to some extent, as he has been ridiculed on uh, social media. But Ross, you were there. And uh, it was, and you were there. In fact, for for the last three games of the box, it must have been a fantastic experience just to be part of that and to see that all happening in front of you.
1: Yeah, it was amazing. Only sport can do that. Mm. I don't think there's anything else that can that can create that sense of unity and division. Like (laughs) it's not always um, it's not always unity. It's also division. But we're on the lucky side of it now that it's unifying. And it was amazing. It was unbelievable. The, The the last three weeks must be the best three weeks in South African sporting history because of the just the way in which it was done. You know, Obviously, 1995 had political implications that probably go bigger than this. Mm-hmm. But in terms of like sheer on-field sports performance, this is as good as I can remember anything in South African sport being. And I've been actually quite disappointed that I couldn't come home straight away. I'm in London now. Uh, I thought I'd have a little bit to do after the World Cup. So I stayed on for a week and I've missed a lot of the celebrations. So I've been limited to seeing it on social media, you know, the arrival of the team back at the airports, mm-hmm. uh, they had a big presentation day and it seems, it seems completely immersive. It looks to me like the same atmosphere as when we hosted the football world cup in 2010. Yeah. I remember back then I, remember back then I was invited up by the BBC to come to Soweto and, and join a panel discussion on sport. I don't know why I was asked to, they probably ran out of other people. But I remember going up there and renting a car and there was a there was a traffic jam on the highway getting to Soweto and it was stuck. And normally that would be massive tensions. People would be angry and irritable, but no one cared. Everyone was just happy. And it was a completely different. And then I actually got rear ended by someone who wasn't paying attention and he hit the back of my car. Luckily, not bad enough to do damage. But we both got out. Now, that's in, in South Africa. That's a potential that's a potential life changing incident normally. Normally, fisticuffs. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But we looked, we looked at each other. We looked at the cars. We saw neither of us had damage. He gave me a massive hug. He said, "Enjoy the World Cup," and off we went. It was <laughs> completely it was like unlike anything you'd find in South Africa. And it seems to me that this rugby, this rugby victory, is given at the same atmosphere. You, you you're there, so you'd know more than I, I. I'm looking at it as an outsider, actually.
0: Yeah, I mean, here in, in Cape Town today, as we record this, they're doing the trophy tour in Cape Town. And uh, anybody that I've spoken to on social media saying, what are you up to today? They're saying, well, we're going to watch the trophy tour. So there's a huge amount of interest. And there's no doubt that in Cape Town Central today, there's going to be thousands of people um, in the streets welcoming the players and we saw some amazingly emotive videos. One of the ones that really touched me was the the, the image of uh, the video of Rusi Rasmus as he arrives back um, at the uh, at the Johannesburg Airport Tombo, and uh, you can see the tears in his eyes and the emotion on his face as he sees the crowd waiting for the players to come through and uh, see a Khaleesi raising the 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 cup in dramatic fashion in front of thousands of people at the airport it it, it was really I mean I, I get goosebumps actually sitting here and I can feel it that the excitement and the, and the patriotism that comes yeah. from that so yes the impact has been huge
1: I mean I, I I saw that video and I saw there was there was another one of him at the same time when they were then handing the trophy around and Jesse quill Creel- our centre goes up to him, tries to give him the trophy, and he says, no, send it to other players. Did you see that one?
0: No, didn't see that one.
1: So he says, no, I don't want to hold the trophy. Send it to the other players. Now, you compare that to mm-hmm. Sir Ramaphosa coming on the stadium. And within, I actually saw this, within eight seconds of Kalisi getting the trophy, Ramaphosa had his hands on it. <laughs> so, so the reason That's I politics that for you. Is, exactly. The reason I bring that up is because every time Khaleesi talks about what it means and so on, and you know what's interesting is that our guys speak about it before it happens, not after the fact. A lot of the time in sports you get hindsight reporting where people say afterwards how unified everything was. These guys were telling us that before. So I think it's quite meaningful in that respect. But what 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 foreigners outside South Africa might not realize is that this this springbok team is one of the few things that Africans actually have that they can point to excellence, leadership, elite performance, proper high performance. And I think that's part of why it means so much, you know because we have this model in this team for like what good leadership and what good unity and diversity and so on look like. And I mean, it's funny even for me to hear myself say that it sounds cheesy normally, but it, it, they, they legitimately are what Kalisi says they are, which is the last resort against South Africa's erosion in the global stage. So it, it, it means far more than rugby does. And I mean, it was just, it was just unbelievable in Paris for the last three weeks. If you would said, you're going to win all three knockout matches by a total of three points. <laughs> and, the guy, and that the guy who comes in to kick those points is not going to miss one single kick in all the games that he plays. Not one missed kick. Yeah. Andre like, Pollard was a 100% record, wasn't he? It's astonishing. Like, it's just unbelievable. Every – and you know what the most, the most flattering and encouraging thing for me is I remember the days that South African rugby was thuggish, boorish, unintellectual big guy smashing opponents do you remember those days yeah like nowadays i listen to podcasts and so on from let's be honest a little bit disgruntled northern hemisphere journalists podcasters and so on and they talk about the mad scientist rossi rasmus and Nino, but they talk about the intellectual approach and the experimentation and the innovation of south african rugby i love it when you hear that sort of stuff because our, our our personality on the global stage has changed and we're now the innovative team that comes with new ideas and pushes boundaries sometimes sometimes maybe to a fault but it's just amazing every single what looked like a risk that that coaching team took over the last two or three years paid off and there's no other team that could have won that tournament along the path that we did because if we hadn't had the depth if we hadn't had the player management if we hadn't had the tactical approach if we hadn't had the forwards back splits on the bench if we hadn't had this complementary skills we hadn't had the leadership on the field even when the captain goes off the guys left behind are still leaders we wouldn't have been able to win that and so it was like it was the perfect illustration of designing success
0: i mean let's face it i'd like to hear your views on this because in the semi-final and to some extent in the final there was a certain element of luck because the teams they were competing against missed a lot of opportunities. As we'll get on to now, there were some controversial decisions in both those games, particularly in the final. And yes, as much as you say all of that, it could easily have gone either way in both the semi and the final. So there's always that aspect in sport where you can say teams are fairly lining up at that final in a fairly equal level. In fact, if I'd chosen between New Zealand and South Africa in the final, it was as much as a draw as it could possibly be, except for that one point. So, did we deserve it, or did we just get a bit of luck going our way for a change?
1: No, of course we deserve. It. Like you could argue, you could argue the luck in the other direction. As well, you could say on another day we would have won by twenty points. Yeah. You know, we like maybe it was lucky for them. It was close. <laughs> so, I'm not saying that to be provocative. I'm saying that or because biased. remember in that game within 90 seconds we lost our hooker the only hooker we had yeah and for 78 and a half minutes we played with a flanker at hooker we it neutralized our scrum our lineup was under pressure the whole game long in the end Mm. somehow they pulled it off i mean that was heroic by by dion free and you can you can always point it's true you can always point to things and i think rugby's actually got a major problem with this if you look at the reaction out of france when they lost to us when you look at the reaction out of england when they lost to us when you look at our reaction when we lost to the british and irish lions two years ago uh, and there have been other instances as well like we're not, by no means exempt from this rugby's got a problem with fans who are quick to blame and who don't take things onto themselves so i think that does play into it a little bit but i don't think it's luck when you can do it consistently you know that like yeah, there's always a little bit of luck, but there's a little bit of bad luck also. And mm. I don't know, playing those sort of post-mortems and saying, oh, you were lucky here and there, of course you can do that. But you can also say you were unlucky here or there. Yeah. And they were lucky here or there. They were also unlucky here or there. And obviously the red card changed it. And I wish it hadn't ever happened because you don't want there to be an asterisk in anyone's mind next to a World Cup win. You want to be able to say we won this thing clean. Yeah. And so the moment, the moment that red card happened, I was like, oh man, that's a that's a blemish on the final. Mm. It's not that it's the wrong decision, in my opinion. I think it's correct and it's necessary. Mm. They are avoidable. But unfortunately it does leave that but if it weren't for Yeah. I hate the fact that there's always going to be those open doors. I'd rather win the game convincingly and, and shut off all conversation, but that's what happened. So
0: just just before we get into the red cards, and I do want to get into this a little bit because it is interesting those potential two incidents around Khaleesi and Sam Kane. Just being overseas, looking at some of the media, obviously here in South Africa we are seeing just massive celebrations and hype. What was the reaction, for instance, in the UK around the Springboks' win? Is it is it a celebration of excellence, and um, what was the general tone of that of that coverage? You think?
1: Well, I think think you must be careful, I suppose, always about general tone, because then you're going to lump some people in with others and they don't deserve it. Mm. Because some of the coverage has been really good. Like I saw a video on Twitter the other day by Bernard Jackman, who's a pundit, former coach from from Ireland, and he did an analysis of our defensive decision-making patterns, execution, outstanding, incredibly complimentary. There have been other guys, and I tweeted actually the other day, guys like Sam Larner, who've done really good analysis, all tournament and before, and they'll keep doing it. Well worth a follow if you follow rugby. And they, they they understand exactly what it is that we do, how we play to our strengths, the innovation and so on. And they're very complimentary. They say an amazing final. They say incredible performance on the All Blacks to co- compensate for that player down. They'll talk about the, the the Springbok tactics, playing to the strength and so on, like all the things we've just mentioned. But then at the same time, you've got journalists often in the mainstream media who just cannot get out of rugby's way. And, you know, the more I, the more I read, like, the stuff that comes out of the mainstream media, the more I think rugby loves to portray itself as a sport in crisis. It loves to talk about sport that will never appeal to the casual fan. There's an Irish podcast show called Off the Ball in which they said the Springboks are world champions but friendless. So oh. no friends. Um the uh, Stephen Jones, who's a, a journalist from the Times, wrote something about the, one of the ugliest rugby matches ever played And the Springboks. Uh, I, f- I forget some of the words that he used. I, did, I didn't maybe blocked it out. It was such garbage. And I think that the, one of the things that rugby can do, if it really wants to grow, is to try and give the people who actually like the game a better voice. Because sometimes it feels to me that some of the people who cover the sport don't even like it. It's weird. <laughs> Yeah, you know, like that. it's just the whining and the complaining and the fault finding and the negativity, the cynicism. It's just whinging and, and non-stop. Like it's unbelievable. But then when you look at the young guys, you do the analysis and you actually understand how the sport has moved on from the 1990s, they see the value in the diversity of the game, the way that it's played in different styles, the the difference in approach from New Zealand compared to South Africa, the tactical and strategic contrasts that's where things are great i mean so many amazing things in that final happened you know you mm. had a flanker packing down for south africa in the front row new zealand had a flanker in the scrum because they lost theirs to the red card mm. amazing no one even discussed it because they're too busy whinging about the red card and the sport mm. in crisis it's crazy like if there was a if there was a quarterfinal, semi-final, final weekend like the Rugby World Cup produced every single week, are you, are you genuinely telling me that people wouldn't love to watch rugby? Yeah, it was yeah. great viewing. I agree. Exactly that quarterfinal weekend, on the Monday after that, that those quarterfinals, everyone said this is the peak of rugby. Rugby has never been better. Within one week, rugby was dead. It's unbelievable. Like <laughs> you know, like so, 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 and then and then when we beat England, thanks in large part, to the pressure that we started to apply on the scrums in the last half an hour of that match, thanks to our front row substitutes. Then the media in England were saying that this is not the way that rugby should be won, thanks to scrums. Rugby's got a problem with scrums. One week before that, no one mentioned them. After the final, nobody mentioned it. Mm-hmm. By the time the final came around, it was all about the kicking and the Springboks anti-rugby tactics. The One New Zealand uh, journalist wrote something about the Springboks won the World Cup not by playing the, be- the best non- the best team at not playing rugby was the world champion. That was the, that was the view. So like a couple of things on that is with my biased supporter hats on, I think it's great when people talk like that, because it means that they haven't recognized the problem. And if they're blaming everything, but them them, themselves, they're never going to bridge the gap. So you'll keep losing until you, until you can actually start understanding why you lost, you'll never figure out how to win. So that's one, one good thing. But it's also just—I don't know. Sometimes it feels like the media. Did when you were in high school biology, did you learn about amoebas? Very well,
0: I know, I know a lot about amoebas.
1: <laughs> and one of the things about amoebas that I remember learning about was that they've got this like excessive tactile response. That if you if you poke them with something, then they retract. And they, mm. Single
0: cell organisms. They,
1: yeah. All they do is they just react, 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 react to like environmental stimuli. And I sometimes feel like most of the rugby media are me because all they can ever do is to react to the thing that's just happened this weekend. It mm. seems to be, there seems to be no understanding of the bigger picture and the, and the nuance and so on. And it's only the, it's only the young guys on Twitter who, thanks to social media, have a voice. And if I, if I could change one thing, I would give those guys, the mainstream media platforms and rugby would be far healthier than it is now with some of the people in there. Not all Charlie Morgan at the Telegraph. Great stuff. Mary Kinsella with Irish media. Amazing. But man, there are some, there are some toxic characters in the sport.
0: Yeah, don't forget. I mean, I'm putting my media hat on here that obviously mainstream media is under some pressure to create clicks and likes and viewership and readership and all that sort of thing. So you have to create a story. And sometimes the best way to create a story is to be controversial around it. So your headline that grabs and grabs attention is going to be something that people are going to click on. And sometimes just saying it like it is, isn't that exciting. And I think there is that pressure on mainstream media to find that angle it that clickable headline that bait the clickbait that you want to get because most of the mainstream media now is is online and and they've got they're competing against those social media guys that you talk about and they're competing for eyeballs and relevance and credibility all those things so there there is that subtle pressure for sure
1: in in traditional media to be competitive it's true it's just sad though like i mean so 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 i reckon you probably find in the 48 hours after that final, there was more said about Wayne Barnes, the referee, than there was said about some of the great player performances on both sides yeah. of, of the ball. You know, like New Zealand had some unbelievable performances. Talia, um, Barrett, Sevilla, obviously, as usual. Unbelievable. But like they were neglected by many people covering it because they were more obsessed about talking about how Wayne Barnes wanted to make him. the center of attention and again that's not unique to them it was the same thing we saw the week before from english fans was the same thing we saw from the french it was the same thing we saw from our fans in in the british and irish Lions, and have seen before that so it's a universal characteristic but I, i just think it's sad because there's so much more value that you can extract from a game especially games at that standard and that level but instead all we're talking about is is wayne bonds who actually was very good so
0: And and sadly, I mean, the the commentators even here in South Africa were commenting on this, that every time there was a referee's decision because of the game uh, that France lost uh, to South Africa, there was this sort of... (sighs) Booing of every single time an official made a call, that the, the French crowd would boo, and it almost became part of it, so that the referees were being ridiculed at every f- moment. And 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 here in South Africa, the commentators are saying it's 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 becoming a bit ridiculous now that the referee is becoming the focus of every decision is questioned and, and booed. Um. So yes, there was a lack of focus on. Their yeah. best
1: performances. This is really- I don't know what you do about that. So I was just going to say the one thing yeah. is Wayne Barnes subsequently retired, right? And I think it was always his intention to retire. So it was really cool that he got to do that final match and then retire with that as his last game. But in his retiring statement, he didn't make mention of the fact that the abuse had gotten excessive. Now, I don't really? think that's. I don't think that's the reason he's retired, but it's definitely something. And you know, a couple of years ago. He was influential in setting up um, basically what's a union for referees now. And one of the primary drivers of that was the abuse they were getting. And that abuse was actually at the hands of our fans. There were death threats made to, to wow. Barnes consequence of a game that we lost and the fans blamed him for it. So I'm not trying to sit here and say like, we're the, we're the saints of this rugby sp- uh, sporting supporting uh, world, because we're just as guilty as everyone else. But like the... It, it was amazing. Like, you know, Ben O'Keefe was the New Zealander who did our quarterfinal against France. He then did the semi. He came out the tunnel for the warm-up and you should have heard the booing. Unbelievable. Wow. Like, just unpleasant, you know? So I don't know how rugby gets a grip on that, but I think it does need to do so because it's it's occupying far too much of the column inches and attention and energy. And it's not, yeah, it's clearly not good for the game.
0: Yeah. Let's just touch very briefly on, i just like your views on this, because obviously there were two particular incident incidences that uh, were controversial in relevance to this. First of all, Sam Kane initially getting a yellow card for, for a, a, a high tackle um, and then mm-hmm. being sent off. And then that was reviewed and he gets a red card. And then Sir in a, in a similar sort of incident, gets yellow carded, not upgraded to red card. Just your yeah. views on that? Were they were they the right decisions? I know that you've been very involved in the lawmaking around this with your role at World Rugby. So just like your thoughts on whether you saw those in, a, in, a, in differently to where they compared to what the referees saw them.
1: Yeah, so I think there's a couple of things on there. First of all, I'd say I think both I think both were correct. I didn't see them at the time. You know, we were. You know, when you're in a stadium, you're trying to look at the screen. They show one replay. It's difficult. But I've looked at them a lot since. And I, I do see why both were made, and I think I agree with them. The, both are made by the bunker system, and I don't think we've really had a chance to talk about the bunker that was adopted for this World Cup. The, the premise of the bunker, and I think it actually, this is where you see it working as well as it can possibly work, is in a World Cup final.
0: So just explain it, what the bunker is for those that don't
1: know what you mean by the bunker. Yeah, so its official name is foul Play Review Officer. And so what... You would know and listeners would know that the sport has struggled for a few years now with trying to understand how to sanction dangerous tackles. So we're talking here about foul play tackles that need to be given either a yellow or a red card. And since 2017, there's been quite a lot of inconsistency and variability around the world about how these cards are given. In one competition, you'll see an increase and another one, you'll see a decrease. You think, geez, we need to get some alignment and some consistency here. So how do we solve this problem of, of two different assessors looking at something differently? And it's a calibration exercise, right? And so a lot of time and effort has been put into that. And one of the things that was proposed towards the back end of last year is that it's really difficult for the guy on the field, studs in the grass, to have to stop the game Look up at the big screen, talking to a TMO, try and get a good angle of a replay uh, of a high tackle incident, run through that process while surrounded in this cauldron of noise 65, 70,000 people screaming, there's pressure on the guy. And so some people suggested to World Rugby that maybe this is the kind of thing that should be taken offline into a review process that happens off field. And so that changes the dynamic now because now. The referee on the field never has to run through the detailed process. All he's got to do is make the assessment, does this meet a minimum standard of a yellow card? Because you'll know that when a guy gets a yellow card, he's going off for 10 minutes. So in effect, you buy time for the decision to be made, right? Why make it in two minutes when you could make it in 10?
0: Hmm.
1: And so the change that was then made, and it was done initially in Super Rugby, is that when the referee sees foul player that's worthy of at least a yellow card, The only decision that ref has to make is to give that yellow card and refer the rest to someone else. And that someone else is a foul play review officer who sits in a room away from the stadium, away from the pressure, who's got a direct line to the TV directors who can request multiple angles, who can work with a Hawkeye consultant to slow it down, speed it up, watch it at normal speed, watch it at slow motion speed, run through the process very systematically and deliberately and slowly. Does that make sense? My yeah. thinking was that if you did that, you would alleviate some of the pressure on the on the guy on the field. You'd give someone more time, more space, more breathing room to make a good decision that would be better for the game. And so that was done in that final. And I think it's good because Wayne Barnes does not want to give that red card. That's the reality. Mm. You don't want to be the guy in the 27th minute of a World Cup final to have to then for five minutes... Think about, am I going to do this given all the implications of giving this red card? So what you do for Wayne Barnes is you say, all you've got to do, Wayne, is you've got to recognize whether it's minimum yellow. That's easy to do. And then you must go off for the review. And then from that point, someone else takes over. And I think it's right. I think it's good that it's done that way because it means that you you can make a team decision and you can alleviate some of the responsibility on the guy on the field. I don't think people have understood that very well. And there was a lot of complaining about why some refs don't just give the red card on the field. Well, no, you've, you've told them that they don't need to, so therefore they're not going to. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's where it comes into play. So he so he gives the yellow card to both Khaleesi and Kane. And then what's happening is that that bunker official who actually was sitting at Roland Garros, the tennis facility, that's where the media center was, is looking at those replays and asking the, the key questions. Now, remember that the head contact process says, was there head contact? Yes. Was the foul play? Yes. What was the degree of danger? Those are the three things that the on-field referee is assessing. And so Wayne Barnes has done that. For Kane and Khaleesi, and he said, yes, yes, and danger is high. Therefore, yellow card minimum. Basically, all that the the off-field official has to then do is he has to confirm whether, in fact, the degree of danger is high or not, and then he has to look to see what the degree of mitigation might be. And if he can find mitigation, then he can keep it at yellow. And if he can't find mitigation, then the red card decision probably stays. And that's exactly what happened with Kane. So that decision would have been assessed as high in danger and without mitigation, red card. The Khaleesi decision would have been assessed as high in danger with mitigation in that specific instance because Khaleesi was actually the second tackler. Dwayne du- and hit severe just before Khaleesi and as a consequence of for Merlin, uh, Ardy Sevier's head drops in height and he moves to his right. And that's what causes the head on head contact from Khaleesi. It's interesting. If you pause or freeze frame those tackles at the moment of contact, Khaleesi is quite significantly bent and the contact is actually happening on Artie Sevier's upper arm. And so it's not a high tackle per se What happens is that there's head-on-head contact as he follows through with the tackle. And so they've decided that it's mostly to the body with secondary head contact and also that there's mitigation. And that's why they changed it to a yellow card. And you can see the rationale for that. When it comes to the cane one, I suppose one could try and make an argument that it's not high in danger because it's not super high speed. If you watch the replay, I think you can make the case that he is moving forward into that contact and there is movement of his arm and what's an attempted dominant tackle so i would argue that it is high in danger and there's no mitigation because he's upright and and the ball carrier hasn't changed his height or level down at all in in, at any time so yeah i mean it was a moment the moment it happened i was getting messages from people saying that's going to be a bad one and you just get the sinking feeling because no one wants it right (laughs) Like, like no one wants there to be a red card in a world cup final yeah, but that's not reason not to give it. You can't say you can't say, oh, this is red because it's a because it's a normal match." Oh no, wait! Today it's yellow because it's a final. No, it's not. That doesn't. That's not how it works. And so, so the difference is.
0: is a, so the diff, The difference is mitigation as opposed to intent, because I was interested to know. That. So 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 intent. Somebody intends to go higher. I guess that that could be argued in many different aspects. Actually, the
1: differentiator is mitigation. There's two differentiators. It's degree of... So remember, there are four decisions. Head contact, yes or no. Foul play, yes or no. Third question, degree of danger, high or low. That's the first differentiator because if it's high, it starts at red. If it's low, then it starts at yellow, low or medium. And then the fourth question is mitigation. So there's two points at which you can arrive at a different decision. So high danger, no mitigation equals red. High danger, yes mitigation equals yellow. Or... Low danger, no mitigation equals yellow, low danger with mitigation equals penalty. So you can you can arrive at three different outcomes depending on how you put those yes no answers together. Does that make sense? Mm, yeah. And so 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 yeah, like in, and that has to be subjective. You know, when we first launched in 2019 the high tackle sanction framework, one of the big criticisms was that it was too rigid and didn't give the referees enough subjectivity. And so the change that was made in the head contact process is to try and allow for more interpretation, more subjectivity. I'm not sure I entirely agree with that. I think that you should try and if you want consistency, you want to try and eliminate grey. but that's what they wanted. So therefore that's what we've got is these two decisions around danger and mitigation that are going to be subjective. But I, you know, when we try to come up with when we said, okay, how do we know something's high in danger? Well, because it's high speed, swinging arm, the player follows through. It's a dominant tackle as opposed to a passive or a soak tackle. You can there's there's certain video signs that reveal whether something is higher or lower in danger. And I'm actually just busy writing up an analysis right now. A hundred how many was it? 150 odd head injuries, and the risk of a head injury when there is a red card is 250 times higher than when there's no red card. It is like, and I'm not, I'm not exaggerating scale. When a tackle is red carded, the risk of an HIA is 250 times higher than when the tackle is legal. So what's a red card? It's a head contact tackle caused by a foul player that is high in danger without mitigation. So what we're saying is that if you see head contact, foul play, high danger, no mitigation, you're 250 times more likely to see a head injury than than when there's a legal tackle so what does that explain
0: explains why the, why the why the rule is
1: in place exactly <laughs> fairly obviously exactly. Yeah. and a red yeah. card is a red card is three times more likely to cause a head injury than a yellow card yeah and 80 times, the yellow card is 80 times more likely than no card so 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 i think that's that's important information to keep in mind but again i it sucks that it happened in the final yeah it really does like it yeah. it's it's for for Kane for the sake of the occasion for the sport. It sucks, but that's not a reason to change things. Yeah. And I mean, Absolutely. again, like, I think I've told the story. Is Jacques Ninabe was the defence coach of South Africa when that high tackle sanction framework was introduced, and he has literally said to me, his initial reaction was, "This is shit. This is going to take away a South African strength. We don't want this." Mm. But you see that. The thing is, those guys, they're so intelligent and they're so strategic, and I think they're emotionally intelligent as well, realized very quickly that this is what's happening and it's necessary for the sake of head injuries and for players' health. And Jock then recognized that he could coach according to that decision-making process. And so he literally has said that he went away and he looked at the high-tackle sanction framework and he's looked at the head contact process and he said to his players, we're going to teach you to tackle according to these processes, so that you don't get red cards. That's why Khaleesi was bent. That's why Etzebeth was bent the week before, two weeks before. That's why Peter Steph toy could make 28 tackles, and not one of them was even close to being a red card attack. Yeah, one of the performances on the final. In... Mm. Ireland, Ireland made 700 and something tackles in this World Cup, and South Africa made over 1,000. Not one of them was red carded. Wow. Not, it's not accident okay there were a couple of yellow cards in there but they were mitigated because the player is bent and you're in a sense protecting yourself by putting yourself in a in a mitigated position through your own actions you, you know what i mean like that's the point i'm trying to make here is that so I'm, I'm, I'm sympathetic but i'm also of the of the mind that you you can maybe not all of them but you can you can deal with a lot of these it's controllable
0: yeah South Africa, who are probably the team most unlikely to adapt, actually have adapted.
1: <laughs> well, again, you see, that's unlikely to adapt. That's the that's the old South African rugby. Yeah, the new South African rugby is innovators and smart guys, and that's what I love most about the fact that we won it like we did. You know. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: Fascinating stuff. And uh, for those of you who've been following our podcast over the last uh, well, couple of months, I know we've been talking a lot about rugby and it has been a fascinating time for all of us. Uh, I'm sure that even if you weren't a rugby fan, maybe you've got involved in the Rugby World Cup more than you would have done previously. So um, thank you to all of the comments that we've received about rugby. There has certainly been very vociferous um, conversations on our Patreon channels and on our other social media channels. So thank you very much for that. Go to Blue nile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Anyway, as Monty Python once said, now it's time for something completely different. And this subject is something that I find quite fascinating, and it was uh, kind of facilitated by an article that I saw on on Outside Online. And I can tell you that some of the stuff on Outside Online is absolutely brilliant. Their journalism is of the highest order, and I've got a huge amount of respect for everything that they do on Outside Online. They have a section on that uh, website called Velo, which is all about cycling. And there was a story written um, in just the end of October by Jim Cotton, and and it's got a headline which says, a massive change how a carbohydrate revolution is speeding up pro cycling now to give you a brief summary of what this article says it talks about the fact that what we've seen particularly in cycling over the last year or two years, is the fact that, uh, that professional riders are able to ingest and use more carbohydrate than ever before. In fact, he talks about the fact that in the last two decades, that has um, it almost doubled the amount of carbohydrate than we saw a decade ago. And that is why we are seeing such incredible performances from the top riders at the major events in world cycling. So I, I sent this um linked to Ross and I said to him, This this looks like an interesting story. We we know we've talked about carbohydrates in the past and we know that we've talked about its role in the sport. So we decided today to kind of focus on this and look at whether or not this story is suddenly a massive change. What the research and the science around carbohydrate intake in, in, in endurance sports is about and kind of just have a broad look at it because there is so many different facets to where this is this is going so so ross first up when i sent you this i think your first reaction was this is not really new news even though outside online were pretending well not pretending we're sort of selling it as something that was a revolutionary change in the way that cyclists were
1: fueling themselves yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, like I'd seen the article and the first thing I did when I opened is I looked at the dates and I was surprised to see that it was 30th of, November, of October, 2023, because yeah, I, I think what it does is this whole thing highlights the disconnect between what's probably happening in practice in elite sports and how slowly the wheels in science tend to move to catch up to it. And they never catch up to it actually. I'm pretty sure that by now something's happening in elite sport that will only be known in 5, 10 years in the scientific literature. The reason I say that is because this idea that 60 grams per hour of carbs, and I think the article talks about that, right? It talks about how like that was the classic thinking. Yeah, That was the classic thinking like 10, 15 years ago. And already 10 years ago, I think people had recognized that you could get away with much, much, much more than what had been published in the scientific literature. In fact, this is what's even more weird about it, is that it had it had been published in the scientific literature. 2004, there was an article from, came out of the University of Birmingham, and it was the first study that I'm aware of that showed that if you combined carbs, so you didn't just have glucose, but you had glucose and fructose, you could get your carb oxidation rates or your carb burning rates well above 60 grams an hour. And that particular one, I think was like 25 to 30 percent higher you know so yeah so that was 2004 coming up 20 years and then by 2008 Asker yorkendrup who we'll talk about a little bit more in a moment had shown that if you could increase your carboxidation your performance improved relative to normal just classic glucose at 60 grams an hour and so that's 15 years ago that that was known and then subsequently there have been a number of different studies that have shown the same thing and we know that athletes have been experimenting and training with different carb mixes, different carb amounts, different carb concentrations, specifically with the objective of teaching themselves how to ingest more and more carbohydrates. and that's that's been that's two generations in elite cycling and Ironman triathlons and so on. And yet now I'm reading it in 2023 as revolutionary. I don't, I don't know if I buy the timelines, you know.
0: I think, to some extent, there is this obviously a huge amount of social media and and uh, noise around keto diets and low carb diets and all that sort of thing, which are yeah potentially noise, a yeah, subject. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of noise in there in that spectrum. and I guess that that muddies the waters of our conversation today. So I don't want to focus too much on that. But for, first of all, let, let's the sixty grams per hour scenario. Do we know mm. where that came from? That obviously came from some level of research, or was that from your view something that just kind of became a, a, a line in the sand that that's what we we that's what you can do and and now it's been challenged so what was the initial yeah 60 gram well, per hour mark where did that come from
1: yeah you know, you'd have to go back to the 1970s i reckon you know we were learning back then about mm. muscle glycogen storage of carbs in your muscle they were learning about liver glycogen which is storage of the carbs in your mm. liver tank and how the liver was putting that into the blood and then your blood glucose and you know, back then they were looking at what, what fails first. Is it your blood sugar or your muscle glycogen? And they were figuring out that limitations in energy supply were quite a big deal during endurance sports. So that's probably where it all began. And then logically the thing that you would do is you'd say, well, how much can we actually give to the system? Like how much can we feed the athlete in order to avoid these limiting failures, this, uh, this depletion of blood, either muscle glycogen or, or liver glycogen that causes then blood sugar to drop. But they would have discovered quite quickly that if you used glucose, which is the simplest form of carbohydrates, that you exceeded a capacity beyond which there was no further benefits. And in fact, what would have happened in those studies is that they would give you 40, 50, 60 grams an hour. And sure enough, the more you take in, the more you burn. the more you burn, the better it is. But then at some point, actually, you, you stop burning it and maybe you start getting sick. Maybe you start having stomach issues and gastro problems because you just can't tolerate those large amounts. Mm. And so the first realization I think there would have been that there was a limitation. And it's subsequently been, well, let me not try and piece together too much of the timeline. But what, what is known is that in order for glucose to get into the blood, it needs to go through a transporter in the intestine. You know, the, the 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 guys will always say that inside the gut is still outside the body. Yeah. So you can drink it, you can eat it, but until it's in the body, it's not yet in the body. And in when, you say, glucose, when you say, yeah, just describe what that transporter is. Yeah, so it's called SGL2. It's a sodium limited glucose transporter. And it sits on the on the lumen side of the intestine. So that's the sort of intestinal cavity side. And in order for glucose to cross over that intestinal wall, it has to use this transporter. So it's kind of like a, it's kind of like an access-controlled turnstile. So mm-hmm. it's in one direction only, and if you don't have sodium and glucose, you can't get through it. But because it's a turnstile, it's got a capacity. It can only take a certain amount before it's succeeded, and that capacity turns out to be around 60 grams an hour. And so the moment you consume more glucose than that, you can't actually get it into the blood. And so that's why it wasn't working in all those experiments is you can, you can give the system more and more and more and more, but it's actually just, you're actually just creating a traffic jam on the outside. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. It's like, uh, it's like trying to get into the Stade de France on a world cup final night, and they've only opened two <laughs> gaps. It's like you're standing in a cube. um And so then what ha- but then what happens is, and this goes back to 2004, that first study I mentioned from Birmingham is that if you, if you've exceeded the capacity of that turnstile and you then add fructose, which is a different form of carbohydrates, then you can get more into the blood. And the reason is, and I'm not entirely sure how these two transporters work with one another is that fructose doesn't use that particular turnstile. It uses another one called glut five. So there's actually two gates, two turnstiles. Glucose uses one fructose uses another And as long as the glucose one is maxed out, the fructose one can use its and then adds to the total amount that you can get into the blood. Does that make sense? Yes, okay. And now all of a sudden Mm -hmm. with a combination of carbohydrates, you can get more into the blood than you could have done before. And that's why that first study 2004 by Brenschens et al found that if you mixed your carbohydrates, you could get 1.3, I think it was 30% more grams per minute oxidation than if you'd only had glucose. And that was kind of the start of it. And by 2008, they were looking at performance benefits and they were finding the same thing when you had a mix of glucose and fructose. And I think where we are now, (coughs) excuse me, is that the commercial side has caught up. And so now you've got a number of these products that do the same thing. And they provide really high volumes of carbohydrates in these mixtures that Mm -hmm. allow the athletes to get way, way, way higher than 60 grams per hour. I mean, I was looking at one paper in marathon runners where they've done 120 grams per hour. And I mean, when you're running double. Yeah, exactly. It's enormous. And that's running, right. Where it's actually maybe a little bit more complicated to get high, um, high carb intake Mm -hmm. because you've got matric movement of the stomach and the up and down motion of running as well, Mm -hmm. but you can do that. You can do it. And this is the point is that if you can, if you can get away with it through training then, and when I said training, I mean training the gut because you actually have to practice this. You can massively increase your carboxidation. and that's been known for some time. Remember in 2000, when was the first sub-2-hour marathon gimmicky thing done? 2017, I think.
0: 2017, yeah, First uh, Kipchoge's first attempt, yeah, about that, yeah.
1: Maybe it was announced in 17 and it was done mm. in 18 in Monza. I've lost track of dates,
0: mm. but
1: one of the... One of the pillars on which that attempt was made was the, was Morton, Martin, Martin.
0: Yeah. The, the, the energy
1: drink and, and gel. Yes. And the premise there was that we could get, we could get more carbs into Kipchoge and allow higher carb oxidation rates than ever before. And that was going to unlock performance. So again, that's seven years ago. The reason I bring it up is to say that it's seven years ago. So whilst I think that there's definitely scientific validity in this argument, the idea that this is explaining why cyclists are going so fast now compared to three or four years for me doesn't work, but it definitely it definitely makes a difference. I just don't think the timing lines are- because it says, I mean, in that article on
0: Outside Online, there's a quote from the Ineos Grenadiers nutritionist, Aitor Virabaev Morales, who says, there's been a massive change in energy intakes in the last five or six years. Riders are able to eat so many carbohydrates on the bike now, almost twice as much as before. That's impacting massively on performance, but also recovery and adaptions from day to day. So he he's looking at the last five or six years, actually, and saying that's where the most significant change has happened and and do you think it's been driven by the fact that there is a better understanding of these of these mixes now compared to previous years
1: yeah i think so more availability i mean i think initially there were probably a couple now there's probably half a dozen and it's funny like you'd be surprised at how often like a sponsorship or commercial agreement denies athletes access to products. I mean, you, you can imagine <laughs> mm. you, you know the right sponsor, someone else has got it and you don't, and they've got an advantage. So I think that's probably part of it. And then just shared wisdom within professional sport. People move, people talk, people borrow things that work, they discard the things that don't. I do think one of the things that's probably happened is, and there's a couple studies on this, that, that one I mentioned earlier with 120 grams an hour in marathon runners, they found there were less, well, the markers for muscle damage were lower with high carb than with normal carb. And so then you think, well, okay, maybe carbohydrate is protective against overtraining and muscle damage. Interesting. There are other studies that show that when you do a very high volume and intensity training block, if you consume more carbs, not just during exercise but for the other 22 hours or whatever it is a day your markers of overtraining and fatigue are reduced and so it's not i I think it's probably fair to say it's not just what happens on the bike on the run in the training session it's also recognition that carbohydrates are probably protective against fatigue overtraining maybe damage and therefore the training stimulus can be optimized better with a better carb diet, and that will have a compounding effect over time. So acute and chronic benefits probably.
0: What's interesting is that because there's this move towards high carbohydrate, did that suggest then that if that rule of 60 grams per hour was in place, that, that the body was somehow in deficit because they wanted more. In other words, why do you need to have more and more carbs? And is there is there potentially a limit down the line where you say, well, you know, we can't do more than 120, for instance, that's the max, or because surely the body can only use, even if it's getting into the blood, it only has the capacity to metabolize a certain level um, of sugars in your even in your blood, um, to the point where taking more would actually be counterproductive, or, or not? I don't know. I mean, I, I'm interested to know. What the th- what the theory is around eating more and, and, and ingesting more and more carbohydrate
1: yeah that, that and that to me is the million dollar question I, I think it's the most important theoretical question as well because if 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 athletes were slowing down because there was a limitation in carb delivery like a car that ran out of fuel yep. then the solution would be very obvious. It up and off you go again, and I think there is still a paradigm that that is how the body works. I don't know that it's true. I think the body is more complex than that. And if you think about if you think about performance, like okay, I'm I'm trying to cycle now at 340 watts in a monument. it's a six seven hour ride, and I'm going to have to find at some point in the last hour and a half of a monument to win Flanders or Roubaix. I'm going to have to find 330 340 watts for prolonged periods, right? Mm -hmm. can i do that with 60 grams of carbs an hour being supplied into my blood and the answer seems to be no where i think it's interesting is if you measure the carb oxidation if it can go up in response to more carbs then clearly there was a limit in the first place make sense for sure yeah so and i mean it's still sort of somewhat jumbled in my own mind but if you think about pacing right and this whole You Maybe listeners would know about it as like central governor model. I I always talk about it as like regulation of performance. One of the things the body is definitely regulating or or monitoring is energy availability. And we don't want to run out of glucose. And so if the glucose supply, specifically to the brain and to the muscle, is in any danger at all, I think we preferentially slow down so that we protect against that potential limitation ever happening. Makes sense. Kind of like a, a dimmer switch that like reduces the light intensity to save power. <laughs> yeah? yeah. I don't have that runs. <laughs> um, in the same way that we slow down when we start getting hot. We don't wait until we've overheated. I think it's probably the same with energy availability. We slow down because we know that if we didn't, we might run out of energy. Yeah. And so therefore, if, if the supply of energy could be increased by 30, 40 percent, that signal to slow down would be removed. The ceiling would be raised. Yeah, makes sense. That would, that would be how I would potentially look to explain that. And it's actually, you know you mentioned ketones a little while there uh, ago there, all these things, whether it was ketones, whether it was medium chain triglycerides, whether it was fat loading, you know, like train low, compete high in carbs. They were all designed to do the same thing, which was to spare sugars during exercise. Because the thing you don't want to do is you don't want to burn carbs excessively when you are needing to perform, because then you reach that limit or that you bump up against that ceiling. So whether you were taking ketones to spare your muscle glycogen, whether you were relying on fat burning to Spare your muscle glycogen or whether you're just giving yourself more glucose because of a a drink or a gel ultimately gets you to the same point which is i am going to move my ceiling higher so that that potential limitation is no longer in sight does that make sense yes yes yeah and so i think that's what it is i mean you could and i'm sure studies have been done on this should look them up you could infuse it straight into the blood at 200 grams an hour Yes. But eventually, eventually <laughs> the muscle. Eventually, like it's just going to be circulating, and your your blood sugar levels is going to be getting higher and higher and higher because you you can't exercise at the intensity that's high enough because something else would limit you first. Mm. I mean, you'd have to be riding six hundred watts for an hour to burn that much carbohydrate. <laughs> yeah, not possible. Yeah, and so so essentially,
0: all the different carbohydrates that we talked about, you you touched on glucose and sucrose, and I mean, there are, are there other sources of carbohydrates, and, and do those other sources, I mean, things like melted dextrin and soluble starches and those sort of things, do they do they all metabolize them as a, at, a, at the same rate, or are they different in, in the way that they metabolize? In other words, if you're doing high intensity, does fructose work better, or are they all one and the
1: same in terms of carbohydrate? Yeah, so I mean, there have been, there've been various studies that have tried different mixes to look at how high you could get that oxidation rate, the carb burning rate, And the, the reality is that no one has found like a magic ratio, either of type or amounts. And so there are some that have looked at glucose, fructose, the very first studies, for instance, of that. Some have looked at glucose, sucrose and fructose. Then there's maltodextrins, which are these chains of glucose that are sort of chemically linked together and so on. So there's no... That i'm aware of and may, maybe maybe this is actually something i'm not aware of maybe now these companies have managed to develop something that can add another 10 15 percent but i don't think that um certainly i haven't seen evidence in the scientific literature to show that there's a magic ratio but what you do need is you want you want sugars that can be absorbed in their simplest possible form eventually so you might you might package them as maltodextrins and sucrose and so on in the actual sachet or gel or drink, but by the time it's in the gut, you want it to be glucose fructose as as uh, as, yeah. as frequently and as often as possible, mm. because that's the you know that's the thing that gets in the glucose via its transporter, the fructose via its one. Mm. So you mm. put, and then and then all the other benefits incidentally on how you package it are related to its osmolality and its fluid implications in the gut because. And listeners will know this if you've tried this stuff like if you're not careful and if you're not trained to drink carbs you will have stomach problems at these levels mm. like even even 60 grams an hour is really hard to tolerate when you're exercising
0: mm.
1: So it's the packaging you know so like martin and some of the other science and sports i think their selling proposition is that this gets the sugar into your blood without causing stomach problems. And that's what the packaging is doing more.
0: And just to, to get it clear, osmolality is the ability for that glucose to get into the blood from the gut. Is that, would that be a fair explanation yeah,
1: of we, it? Yeah, without messing up where your water and your fluid is. Because the problem is if you've got this really sugary substance now sticking around in your intestine, it draws fluid into the gut. And that's when you start to get stomach problems, gastrointestinal mm. discomfort, diarrhea, potentially nausea, bloating, vomiting. It's really not pleasant. And so, <laughs> no so <kidding>. cyclists, cyclists <laughs> Ironman, triathletes. like if you, if you know, for instance, you're going to race in, in April, you need to be spending a couple of months before that, actually on training rides, practicing with this high carb intake, because Especially race intensity, you've got less less circulation to the gut in the first place. Maybe it's compromised anyway. And then you mm-hmm. overload it with sugar. That's a recipe for disaster. So yeah, I think I think the you know, the, the big challenge, and it's not unique to sugars, by the way. It was the thing when we discussed bicarbonates recently, is you you gotta get it into the blood first and the the, the stomach. Intestine blood barrier represents a real challenge, and I think the commercial innovations are how do you how do you do it without mm. causing down so that all that's remaining is upside. Mm. Mm.
0: Yeah. there's some interesting uh you, you touched on Aska Yokendrip um who's got a very great, very good site mysportscience.com where he kind of goes into some of the details and one of the interesting things and it's kind of a bit of a segue is that the ingestion of carbs can sometimes be done through what's called a mouth rinse. In other words just by rinsing yes. your mouth in a carb mix actually can benefit you I mean that that sounds crazy because you're not you're it's not really going into your gut so how does it get absorbed and how does a mouth rinse? give you carbohydrates you don't absorb
1: via your mouth which i find no and kind of... so that tells you and in fact you don't even need to you don't even need to swallow it you just have to like have it in the mouth for a while and it improves performance which tells you that it's not necessarily only about delivery to the muscle and i remember when that study came out i was still back and that was in my university days and i think i was either still just finishing up my phd or had just finished it And I remember we looked at that study and said, well, this kind of lends support to the idea that there's a a glucose sensor in the brain and you can almost deceive it into thinking it's got glucose by rinsing the mouth with it. Because clearly that glucose, if if it's not getting into the intestine, it's not getting into the blood, it's not getting to the muscles, but your brain reacts as if it did. And that tells you that there must be some sort of glucose sensing mechanism where you can almost deceive your body into thinking that it's abundant when it's not. Now, at some point, that would end in disaster because. Yes, because you do need important. it in the end, yes. Yeah, exactly. But it was interesting because it did support the idea of a central controlling system that relied upon a signal from the body, in this case, sensors in the mouth, maybe, mm-hmm. has well, have been, or uh, placebo effect potentially. Could be that as well. Um mm-hmm. and which then created the same net results or end results as actually providing the glucose. So yeah, that was really interesting. I I remember those studies quite well. Mm-hmm. They made quite an impact on our thinking, mostly because they sort of mm-hmm. you you could only explain that if there was some sort of regulation based mm-hmm. on sensory feedback. So that so that research, I mean that yeah. that is that that research is
0: that comment is actually accurate. That does actually work. A mouth rinse. Does legitimately have an effect on performance, which I'm amazed yeah, by, to yeah. be honest with you, just because of the brain signaling
1: well, something. I mean, yeah, it's it's extraordinary. extraordinary. And I think it was repeated, you know. And sometimes in science, you know, you can show lots of things. You can show that um, you can show that drinking alcohol is good for recovery, as we discovered once when we spoke <laughs> to Christy <Ashwander. laughs> um Turns out that's probably a spurious finding. I think this one was replicated and. So yeah, it was it was interesting. In that regard. again, it could just be placebo, right? Like athletes know they're supposed to drink, so therefore when they have that sweet taste in their mouth, they improve performance. That's a pretty powerful effect. But yeah, mm. I, I I suspect that it probably reveals that there's a sensing mechanism that doesn't necessarily rely on it being in the muscle, but it mm. must also be the muscle, obviously. You know? So, yeah, 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 What's interesting? Yeah. Oh, so I was just going to say, so like we've seen in the past, remember there was a photograph of Matthew van der Poel's stem? Yes. Is it his or I, I think, think it was van, van der Poel, De Poel yeah. yeah. And it had on it like when he was going to drink his carb mix, when he was going to take his caffeine shot, when he was going to drink fluid. And it's obviously now gotten to the point that they're prescribing this stuff in quite a lot of detail and in very high volumes. and. Mm it would be fascinating to circle back to how I started is to know. Okay. Some of those guys are so young. They've only been around for a couple of years, but like when, when did the elite peloton or Ironman field actually start doing this? Cause I guarantee you it's not in the last couple of years.
0: Yeah. But there seems to be based on the, based on that comment by the Ines Grenadiers nutritionist, that there is definitely a, a higher level. I mean, I, I rem- I'm reading a tweet here from Inigo San Milan of course the coach of uh, Telepagacha who actually refers to the story that we've been uh, using as our guide for this uh, podcast, uh, Outside Online, he talks about the fact that 18 years ago, when I started measuring carbohydrate oxidation rates in the lab, I saw that current guidelines, which at that time were 35 to 55 grams per hour, were not adequate. I started to recommend and apply 80 to 100, and even 125 grams per hour, and he talks about the fact that science, and you mentioned this right at the start, which I was surprised at, is that the the athletes themselves are almost leading the science, where you always believe the science leads the athletes. So, in fact, what's first happening is that people like Inigo San Milan are looking at top athletes, and the science is then following up with confirmation of that practical use of carbohydrates, which is the other way around from what I imagined it would be.
1: Yeah, you always got to say, who's got the incentive, though, right? Who, who's, mm. who's more open to experiment because of the incentive balance? And it's always the athlete. Mm. But science moves so slowly. Like You know, an athlete says, I want to win. I need to find 20 watts extra. If I can find those 20 watts or if I can run three seconds a kilometer faster, I'm winning the next race I compete in. So let's try five new things all at once. The scientist says, let's try one thing at a time and let's spend six months on it. <laughs> <And> so <laughs> in the same time that an athlete will throw five things to it in one week, a scientist will say six months to do one thing. Mm. It's just it's just a slow moving world, unfortunately. Sometimes, you know, and it's it's out of necessity because you have to be systematic about it. And I think the best athletes are the ones who are systematic but also fast moving, you know. But yeah, mm-hmm. it's it's yeah, it's not the first time, and it won't be the last that athletes are doing things that science yeah. has yet. But again, in this instance, two thousand four was the first time it was known published that i'm aware of 2008 there was a performance benefit shown as a consequence of these carb mixes so why would it have taken 10 years for it to become practice because i don't think it did i think it was probably already practice. and i think what you've got now is a lot of people claiming novelty when it's actually not all that new that's why it would be so interesting to find a guy like uh i don't know cavendish or someone who's been around in the peloton for 10-15 years and ask them when did they actually start training their guts? When did they actually start doing training rides at 80, 90, 100 grams an hour of carb as opposed to what we seem to be learning now is like everyone's only just waking up and I don't think that's the case.
0: Mm. Yeah.
1: I did find Just out of interest, I did find a, an article on carb mouth rinse and endurance performance and there are at least a dozen studies that find benefits between 2 and 5%. So it's a pretty well-established yeah. finding now. Start of it's extraordinary. Mm. So, extraordinary. Yeah. So let's yeah. let's let's wrap it let's wrap it up a bit and talk about in
0: terms of recommendations. I mean not all of us are elite athletes, but you know, I've always believed that you know there's there's certain recommendations, having worked on runners world and bicycling for so many years, that anything under half an hour, you don't need carbohydrates. If you get anything above 90 minutes, for instance, you need to start ingesting carbohydrates. And if it goes to to two, two and a half hours plus, then obviously has to be um, a lot of carbs ingested. So just confirm with it that that is the current thinking. And then maybe we can get on to after that, like how do we get used to this process as normal day-to-day athletes um in terms of upping our carbohydrate intake
1: yeah so i agree with your sort of rule of thumb there and but but it does depend a little bit on intensity as well like so 30 minutes of very high intensity you might want to think about a little bit of carbs every 10 you know like Mm a even and especially when you get to an hour so for instance if you watch cyclocross now mountain biking races those guys coming through the pits every second or third lap might want to just take a little bit of carbohydrate in, even if it's benefit is only on the mouth signals, not necessarily into the muscle, you know, mm-hmm. um, but but for most of us who aren't exercising at anything close to elite level of performance, we can probably get away without carbohydrates without any detrimental effect on performance, you know, um, you must remember what, for, for, you know, for half an hour or less. Yeah, even up to 60 minutes. If you go out and you're doing like an easy sort of run, sort of at your half marathon pace for 60 minutes, you you don't need carbs to sustain that performance. Mm. And the stimulus is so low that I don't think you probably even need carbs to prevent overtraining. If you go and you do your long run, or if you do a harder hour run, then it starts to change, right? Because the the training load is higher by virtue of the volume and the intensity. Does that make sense? So for up to... For up to 60 minutes, you could probably get away with very small amounts or even just a sip every 15, 20 minutes or so. Mm-hmm. Up to two hours, you probably need between 30 and 60 grams per hour, particularly if you're doing low intensity exercise. If you are an elite athlete, then it's different, right? Because remember those guys, when those guys are cycling at 320, 360 watts, they're energy consumption is enormous. I mean, they're burning through 18 to 20 calories per minute. Mm-hmm. And you've got to fuel that energy supply, uh, energy demand rather. And so for them, it changes. But for most people during exercise, 30 to 60 for up to two hours is more than enough. Because remember, we start normally with relatively full tanks and we have access to, to fuel on the go. So like, as long as you've got a little bit coming in, in a form of, simple carbohydrates, 30 to 60 grams for up to two hours should get you no problems to the finish line. So that would be for a slow half marathon, uh, easy 30K training run if you're a decent runner, that sort of thing. Makes sense? Yeah. yeah. Once you get above two to two and a half hours, then you start to get into the area where it's a little bit trickier and you probably need between 60 and 90 grams per hour. If you're an elite yeah. athlete, you want to maybe go above 90. But uh-huh. you probably don't need that unless you are an elite athlete.
0: And so and how that, pra- how practically do you work that out? In other words, if you, you have to look at your carb drink and say, right, the, the, this carb drink has, if I mix it in the right ratios, I have to drink this much carb. It's In, in an hour, I need to drink this bottle or take that gel.
1: Is, is, is that
0: the simplest way of doing it? There's a bit of homework to be done.
1: Yeah, and practically what you don't want to do is try and ingest it all at once because... Mm. You know, to get, let, let's say it's 60 grams an hour, like you could have a 10% solution. That would be 600 mils of a 10% solution. So first of all, that's very sweet. But if you're trained mm. to drink it, you can get away with it. But you still need 600 mils in one go. That's not going to be comfortable. So sure. it, becomes, it becomes a practical exercise of saying, let's have 150 mils every 15 minutes. So I'll sip a cup, basically, the equivalent of a cup, Every 15 to 20 minutes and that's how i'll get it in over the course of in over the course of the the duration so it's a practical thing um it, the higher your the higher your constant higher the concentration you can get away with the better it is but that requires a fair amount of training in of your gut you know and there's definitely evidence that you can do that and so you probably want to mm. go out and say right i'm going to do two hours at close to race intensity because that's a key point if you practice at low intensities and then race at high intensities guarantee you the circumstances are going to be quite different and tolerate so let's say it's two hours at sort of race intensity can i take 60 an hour might be uncomfortable the first two times after the third fourth fifth time i start to get a little bit better now let's try 75 an hour and then let's try 90 an hour so Mm. it's a question of just like it's it's exactly the same thing you do when it comes to training volume and speed you just gradually load the system a little bit more each time mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, i mean that that was it. you almost asked, sort of answered my question there so as a as a i was going to ask is there a blanket rule and actually what you're saying is that most of us would struggle to actually bring in and tolerate as much carbohydrate as you could as you could you'd need to train your gut to do that so actually drinking and getting used to drinking as much carbohydrate as you can is probably a fairly good way of looking at it. If you're doing long endurance
1: type exercise, whether it's cycling or running. Yeah. If performance is your objective from that exercise, mm. again, I, you know, the kind of stuff like, and I mean, safe to say like that I do, and certainly that we do like we will ride four or five hours, maybe once every few months on a Sunday morning and so on. Like we, we don't need to have 90 grams an hour for that. At the intensity, we ride, <laughs> you know, yeah. but if we were like, it's DC now, there's a race in Cape town called the double century. It's a 200 K race. The winning teams do it in five and a half hours, maybe. Yeah. The sort of average time is probably seven to seven and a half hours. I'd say there, you probably want to be looking at 60 to 90 grams an hour. Certainly if you want to win that race, you need to be looking at like well above 60 grams an hour of carb. And that means that you that race is in three weeks time right so those guys better be training now with carbs because if you're not familiarizing yourself with 60 to 90 an hour in training lines then on race day you're going to struggle to get that in over the course of six hours i mean think about how much sugar that is over six hours that's it's a lot. 540 grams worth of sugar <laughs> that's, that's, yeah. that's an, yeah so so yeah you you really have to practice it but I wouldn't I wouldn't become obsessive about this unless you've got real performance aspirations, you know. Because mm, mm. um, because in is,
0: theory, if you if you're doing a long endurance ride and potentially riding at a very low level, you wouldn't actually access much of your glucose anyway. You could actually almost oxidise your fat for the exactly, entire like way. So, so it's so I intensity mean, makes a difference.
1: Big time because like we let's say we're riding now and we're taking a sort of nice coffee cruise around the peninsula, 130, 140K, five hours mm. worth. Like we're riding at 60, 65% a maximum. Yeah. If you're, if you're trying to win a race like DC or any other Ironman, whatever, like you, there you're riding 75, 80%, sometimes even over that. And that mm. difference is enormous in terms of which fuel you're reliant on. So you're exactly right. Like you, you don't need to replace 60 to 90 or provide not necessarily replace you don't need to provide 60 to 90 grams of carbs an hour when your carboxidation rates are low because your intensity is low so you need to be aware of what the intensity is and the duration but as a rule of thumb 30 minutes nothing 60 minutes very little two hours 30 to 60 grams an hour and then above that is where you start to get into this world of of having to practice um, nutrition in, in training in order to race yeah yeah Yeah. Yeah. Well, there we go. It's a, yeah,
0: it's a, it is an interesting subject. And as I mentioned right at the start of this podcast, it often gets confused with so much of this talk around people on these low carb diets. But um, as we've seen in many, much research over the last uh, sort of couple of years, when these keto diets still, the top athletes will tell you that there is a carbs are king. (laughs) There's no getting away from it. For most of us who are riding and exercising and doing endurance sport, carbs are king. And very few of us can operate. Unless you are training at an extremely level level, you can't perform without carbs. I mean, is that is that a fair or, way to summarize? Yeah, it? yeah. That,
1: that's exactly right. The the only exception is that you could use low carbs in combination with smart training to try and get the benefit for competitions. So for instance, that's the that's the train low compete high. When we train without carbohydrates, we force our bodies to become better at oxidizing fat. The consequence of that is that when we then race and we can use more fats, we have a sparing effect on carbs. But what you would then do is you'd make sure you race with high carbs. So so you can get a little bit clever and creative about this and say that you're going to do a block of training, low intensity work, but without carbohydrates. But then when we do our higher intensity training, we're going to provide carbs. That's pretty well known. Now Louise Burke has come out with a couple of studies in race walkers. It's been done in cyclists as well. Now where. If, if you do higher intensity work without carbs, you compromise the training quality. So yeah. you have to do lower intensity training without carbs. And there might then be a knock-on benefit to your carb sparing when you then have the carbs in the race situation down the line. So mm-hmm. you can get away with it, but you have to be very deliberate and you have to be very precise about how you manage the trade-off between carb supply and intensity makes sense yeah um yeah But, but fundamentally if you're looking for performance at a high intensity you you cannot get it without carbohydrates and that's not unique or limited to in session only acutely that's a chronic issue where for a week or two if you're doing a hard training block you need to be and i think the figure i saw was like eight and a half to 10 grams per kilogram per day. So for someone like me, that's seven, 800 grams a day of carbs is what I would need in order to maximize fuel replacement in a hard training block over the course of a day. So that's a, that's a significant amount. So, yeah, I think, I think we swung, we swung the pendulum away from carbs mm. to the detriment of performance. And I think maybe, Maybe when people talk about it as a revolution, it's literally the case because it seems like it's come full circle.
0: It's absolutely a great way to <laughs> summarize it yeah. well let us know what you think uh don't forget you can support us on our patreon channel you can go to patreon.com and look for science of sport podcast and uh, become one of our patreon members there is always lots of discussion happening on there and i'm sure patreon supporters will be discussing this very topic um, over the next couple of days uh, ross often sends out the regular newsletters to our Patreon supporters and for a very small amount which is basically the price of a coffee in the uk i won't say the coffee of price of a coffee in africa because that's a different one altogether but um, a price of a coffee in the uk you can get yourself uh, onto our patreon supporters and become very involved in our community on there and uh, we're also available on on x or as it was previously on twitter Um, but let us know what your thoughts so, but uh, for now it's goodbye
1: follow the science of sport podcast at sports SciPod and on instagram at science of sport podcast